Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate, and I'm getting an echo. Many people these days are saying that they fear democracy is in crisis, but what exactly is it that we think we're in danger of losing? In his latest book, Democracy Rules, Princeton Social Sciences professor Jan Werner Muller lays out how democracy is meant to work and, and writes that despite all of its problems, democracy does, not, does still rule in the sense that plenty of people around the world view it as deeply desirable. The book is published by Farrah Strauss and Giroux, and I'm very pleased that it brings Professor Muller to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. You say this book is not a political manual. What is your goal here? After many years of crisis talk and a lot of, I hasten to add, justified alarmism, where we haven't had much of a chance to sort of sit back a little bit and remind ourselves why we care about democracy in the first place, what's really essential for it and what isn't, the aim of the book was to take us back to basics and basically remind us uh, what might be ordinary, not always pleasant, but still quite normal policy disagreements. And what are the moments where democracy itself is really at risk and where it's, so to speak, a matter of defending the basics? I was trying to find that red line. And it's something that hopefully is useful for all kinds of professionals, including journalists, if I may say so. But it's also, I think, important for citizens themselves to see where they might legitimately disagree and where normal day-to-day -day disagreement is just what democracy is about and where we have actors who are really bent on destroying democracy as such. Your previous book was What is Populism? How would you define populism and what role does it play in a democracy? So my understanding of that term differs a little bit from the inherited American notion of populism, which very often comes down to something like Main Street versus Wall Street. Uh, originally in the late 19th century, as you know, it was about farmers and the downtrodden who wanted to mobilize already in those days against Wall Street, against metropolitan elites, and so on. My understanding is a little bit different. Um, I call populists those politicians and party leaders who in one way or another claim that they, and only they, represent what populists often call the real people or also the silent majority. That has two consequences, both of which I think are detrimental for democracy. One is that such leaders will then also claim that all other politicians, all other contenders for power are fundamentally illegitimate. It's not just a matter of policy disagreements or even disagreements about values. Basically, what candidate Trump infamously said about his uh, major contender in 2016 and then sort of again in 2020, namely they're simply corrupt and crooked and so on. That's what, in my view, all, po all populists do. They basically just try to convince us that all other politicians are bad characters who betray the people. And secondly, hey. and less obviously maybe, these politicians then also say that all those citizens, all those among the people themselves who don't support them, who don't share their understanding of the real people or who don't look like what they say the real people are, that all those can basically be excluded. 
So just as another example to maybe make this plausible, when when President Trump was criticized, very often the answer was not, this is why my critics are wrong. The answer was, the critics are simply un-American. So this reduction mm -hmm. of politics to questions of belonging and the tendency always to exclude others, that for me is the hallmark of populism as I understand it. And I hope it's become clear why that is dangerous for a democracy. You say that Viktor Orban of Hungary, Narendra Modi of India, populists and I'm assuming Erdogan of Turkey, Bolsonaro of Brazil as well. But you say that Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are not populists? Well, I understand that in the American context, many people would say, well, look, of course they are populists. Of course they defend Main Street against Wall Street and so on. It's a question whether that's a super helpful term in this context. Uh, we may as well call them old-style social democrats or even socialists for that matter. But if we use populism, then very often we're kind of on a slippery slope towards saying, yeah, they must have something on some level in common with some of the other characters you mentioned, mm. you know, Bolsonaro, Viktor Orban, or Marine Le Pen in France or somebody like that. And or, or Donald Trump, you say. Sorry? Or, or Donald Trump, you say. Or Donald Trump for that, for that matter, exactly. And I don't think they have anything in common. Now, I hasten to add, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that there couldn't be such a thing as left-wing populism in the way that I've been describing it. In other words, I'm not saying that they couldn't be left-wing actors who basically claim the same monopoly of representing the people. And some of the obvious examples in our day would be figures like Maduro in Venezuela or Chavez, who basically, after a certain point, simply said, there cannot be anything like a legitimate opposition. Whoever opposes us is by definition a traitor, uh, is not owed any justification for what we do, and so on. So I'm not saying that by definition, you know, it could never happen on the left. It does happen on the left. But the overwhelming trend in our era is certainly towards what, for shorthand, I think we should call right-wing populism. Do you see any irony in the fact that your book, What is Populism, was published in the fall of 2016, three months after the referendum on Brexit and two months before the election of Donald Trump? I'm not I'm not claiming that I'm super prescient. The book was, of course, even finished before before Brexit. But I'm not in any way claiming that I foresaw any of these any of these developments. One thing, though, that I would say and that unfortunately has been confirmed even more is that there is a kind of strategy or even a pattern of governance that these right wing, in many cases, clearly authoritarian populists exhibit that basically can be copied by others. So, you know, we, when you look around today, you see that there are many similarities between, let's say, Bolsonaro, Erdogan, Modi in India, also Trump, and many others. And sometimes people then conclude that, oh, that must be because the basic underlying reasons for why these people came to power must be the same. And then they debate whether it's more cultural or more economic and so on. But it doesn't necessarily follow that the causes are all identical. It's at least as plausible to say that these actors can learn from each other. So if, let's say, one of them comes up with a facially neutral law that de facto serves to intimidate civil society or reduce press freedom even further, others can basically take notice and copy it and do something similar. And that is a kind of phenomenon that is still spreading and that unfortunately, I think, is still not fully understood by outside critics who, if anything, tend to underestimate some of these characters. You argue that democracy is founded not only on liberty and equality, but also on uncertainty. 
well, we must be living in very democratic times because there's a strong sense of uncertainty these days. Just look at the complicated situation and the standoff between the Democratic legislators and the Republican governor of Texas. You're absolutely right. And I was afraid you were you were going to go even further and say, look, after so many months of a pandemic with tremendous amounts of uncertainty, how can anybody stand up and say that uncertainty in any shape or form could be could be a good thing? Let me clarify that I'm not saying that uncertainty is somehow at the same let's say, moral level as liberty and equality. I mean, the latter two are absolutely foundational principles for democracy. They are the reasons we care about democracy. They are the reasons why we find, let's say, voter suppression so fundamentally wrong in a democracy. The uncertainty is more about the fact that any good democracy actually does contain contain a kind of openness about the future or, if you like, uncertainty about the future. If you want certainty, if you always, always want to know what the political outcomes are going to be, you probably are going to like North Korea because everything is always going to be pretty clear in advance. Whereas in a functioning democracy, the chance of surprises, the chances of a turnover of power, even in unexpected circumstances, should always be there. And I'm basically just riffing here on, on one of the seemingly banal definitions of democracy by one of our distinguished colleagues at NYU, uh, the Polish-born Adam Szyworski, who once said, well, the, the simplest definition of democracy is something like a system where parties lose elections, and it's not always mm -hmm. the same parties. This can sound banal, but I think we've all had a lesson in recent times, how important it is that this basic point is accepted, that at least sometimes you may also lose in a democracy. And you can't then turn back and say, no, there has to be certainty because we are the only representatives of the real people. So by definition, we cannot really, or rather in this case, President Trump, I cannot truly lose an election. So that's what this uncertainty bit is about. But again, I underline that I'm not saying that this is somehow now a value in and of itself. It's not. So are the people who are claiming that Trump didn't lose the election, even though uh, all the indications are that it was the fairest election in the history of the United States, are they undemocratic? I think they do violate one of the basic, basic principles of democracy. And that principle is not that you can't criticize our election system or that you can't persist in saying that, look, our, our side had the better arguments or our side didn't deserve to lose. All this is fine. I mean, losers in elections are not expected to say, oh, OK, now we have to accept everything that the other side said. Now, basically, the winner is entirely validated with their arguments. Absolutely not. I mean, good losers basically continue with something like a loyal opposition, loyal to the political system, but as critical of the government as they as they want to be. What you can't do, and unfortunately, though, it's something that not all, but plenty of right-wing populists have actually done in recent years, is to essentially have a logic like the following. If you start off by saying, we and only we represent the silent majority, then by definition, if you don't win at the polls, it must mean that the silent majority was prevented from expressing itself, because otherwise, you know, you would always, by definition, have the majority. So you're very fast on a kind of slippery slope towards saying somebody must have manipulated things behind the scenes. And 
that then basically opens the floodgates for conspiracy theories, for weakening the trust of citizens in the democratic institutions as we have them. Again, I want to underline that this should not mean that we couldn't criticize these institutions. But there's a difference between somebody who says, look, I think our system is broken because of campaign finance or because all kinds of you know, local administration of elections isn't as, as efficient or as effective as it could be. These are all things anybody can, of course, say. That doesn't mean you're anti-democratic. But to say, because we didn't win, it must be rotten. That's not really a democratic argument. Well, monopolies, uh, there's no competition uh, but, uh, and, and no uncertainty. Didn't Peter Thiel, the libertarian venture capitalist and Trump supporter, praise monopolies and say that competition is for losers? So I, I would kind think of... that there are some people in the GOP who are saying that right now. Well, I sort of took that took that observation and ran with it, so to speak, hmm. in order to make the point that that indeed a continuous competition is something that also gives losers hope. And that relates to another, I think, important point that we sometimes have lost sight of, which is that it remains indispensable for democracies that we have really functioning political parties. And what that means, among other things, is parties that have real programmatic commitments and therefore also real long-term horizons. If they have long-term horizons, they can say, look, we lost this time, but we're going to give it another go. We're going to convince more people next time about our arguments. And, you know, one loss is, is not the end of the world. If you make a party into a personality cult in the way that Trump has tried, if you basically give up on programmatic statements, I mean, remember how at the convention in, in August 2020, the Republicans basically said, we're not giving you a new program. We were simply basically swearing loyalty to the president. We have nothing new to say. That's a very bad sign because that, among other things, results in a situation as in basically December, January uh, 20 and 21, where you feel, OK, now everything is at stake. Um, we only care about our, with all due respect, 70 plus uh, years old candidate. And that person doesn't have super long time horizons. So we must keep this guy in power. That's not really how normal political parties would function. And that's one of the reasons also why quite beyond individual individual personalities, it's kind of the institutional decay of the GOP as such, which is posing a problem for the democratic system as a whole. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Jan Werner Muller the Roger Williams Strauss Professor of Social Science at Princeton University. We're discussing his latest book, which is called Democracy Rules. It's published by Farris Strauss and Giroux. You say uh, democracy is based, I'm quoting, is based on the notion that no one is politically irredeemable and that anyone can change their mind. Who are we talking about in that regard? QAnon followers, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, neo-Nazis, the Women for America First. I, I have a feeling that they would resist having anyone trying to change their minds. Empirically, that doesn't seem a totally implausible statement, but I nevertheless would insist that, at least for me, the sort of truly scandalous word in Hillary Clinton's infamous deplorable, deplorable speech was actually not deplorables, but was precisely the notion of irredeemable. I think in a democracy, 
if you end up saying, look, certain people are irredeemable, it's never worth talking to them. You basically, in a certain way, do the very kind of thing that I was trying to highlight about and criticize when it comes to right-wing populists. You're basically permanently excluding certain people. You're basically saying we can simply write them off, never makes any sense to talk to them. The fact that on the ground it can be very difficult, I agree with, of course. But nevertheless, to kind of officially announce, okay, that's it. You know, we're not, we're not going to be concerned about these citizens at all anymore. We've simply written them off. I think is 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 the wrong is the wrong stance. And one one shouldn't do that. One should keep trying. Again, it's maybe worth emphasizing that it's not like, oh, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, you know, uh, plenty of our fellow citizens decided to adopt all kinds of conspiracy theories. Um, yes, that can happen. But as plenty of our colleagues in social science have also shown, there are larger institutions who are involved in this. Uh, there are, you know, what nominally officially are certain news organizations, or at least organizations which have the word news in, in, their, in their official names and titles, which in one form or another are encouraging these things. So mm -hmm. it's not just about individuals and their psychology and their supposed proneness to, to irrationality. There is something larger going on in terms of the institutional infrastructure of our public sphere, so to speak. And rather than always going on about how you know crazy individuals are and how stupid and so on, we might say a bit more about these institutions and how they are failing democracy as a whole. You've headed one section of your book in praise of demagogues. <laughs> what do you find to praise about demagogues? It's a very, forgive me, it's a very pedantic point. It's simply, it's simply reminding us that at least the original meaning of the of the Greek term demagogue, demagogos, wasn't actually the kind of stuff that we now tend to associate with, with demagogues, i.e., you know, people who somehow seduce the masses with uh, certain false promises and, and so on. What they simply meant, actually, was something much more neutral when they said, okay, this is kind of a leader who emerges and makes a kind of offer to citizens, because basically democracy always requires some kind of structuring of conflicts. I know this can sound very abstract, but bear with me. Basically, no issue, no conflict will sort of magically appear by itself with certain exceptions. Obviously, you know, if we talk about 9-11 or we talk about a flood, as, as is the case in Germany right now, yes, of course, people understand there's, there's an immediate, mm. immediate need to address something. But many other conflicts in a society do not sort of automatically, objectively present themselves in a certain way. Um, so it matters, for instance, whether we describe a conflict as a cultural one between the allegedly, you know, real America and the Midwest versus so-called uh, liberal bi-coastal elites, or whether we use, for instance, a kind of economic language to talk about conflicts. And what the Greeks already understood was that it will take certain people or again, if we talk about institutions, it will take political parties to kind of articulate these conflicts in a certain way. And then people can kind of group themselves around these leaders, around these, around these parties. And my point was simply that this is not in and of itself somehow bad, or this shows that democracy isn't working. As long as we live in representative democracy, that's basically what it takes to make the whole system function. And the good news about all this is, that even in situations that look pretty bad in the way that right now, obviously, the kind of asymmetric polarization we have in the U.S. looks pretty bad, we should always remember that this is not somehow God-given or this is our fate. 
Somebody shaped these conflicts in a certain way. And that also means they could be shaped differently. Again, this can be fiendishly difficult. I'm not saying this can happen overnight or, you know, at will and in certain ways. But it, it's just a reminder that there's maybe more creativity or more of a dynamic and open element in democracy than sometimes is, is believed or thought. Aren't today's anti-democratic leaders like many of the fascists and authoritarians of the 20th century using the tools and institutions of the democratic state to consolidate their power? They, they try to make them look democratic on the surface, right? So let me give a very clear answer, yes and no. So I agree that very often the danger emerges from within and therefore can also be harder to discern. I mean, very few leaders, hardly any in fact, on the world stage today openly say we are against democracy, we have a completely alternative system and so on. On the contrary, some of the figures we've already talked about, like Orban or Erdogan, will, of course, say our understanding and even our practice of democracy is actually better than that of what they often then call call, call liberals. So, yes, that makes things easier uh, in certain ways for them to, to advance with their agenda, because very often it the kind of undermining of democracy happens in more in more subtle ways. The other part of the answer, though, is that at least in my view, and obviously plenty of people disagree with this, there's a limit to how useful these analogies with 20th century fascism really are. Um, there is a commonality, if, if you find anything useful or worthwhile at all in what I, was, what I was trying to say earlier, there is certainly a commonality in terms of leaders claiming to be the uniquely authentic representatives mm -hmm. of the people. I mean, clearly, Hitler and Mussolini, for instance, said, you know, I'm the only representative of the German and Italian people. So in that sense, it was also populist. But fascism, I think, is still something else in terms of its ideological commitments to, let's say, the glorification of violence, where they essentially argue that the most fulfilled human life is one of violent conflict, ultimately maybe even violent self-sacrifice. So it's not an accident that all fascist states eventually went to went to war. And they, even they celebrated of, their militaries with lots of yes. parades and uh, and yeah, the like. And they, and they also they really absolutely right. And they also they also really systematically try to regiment, but then also mobilize their societies. So, you know, as you say, there's a reason why the, the images we tend to associate with these regimes are ones of people parading around, the youth being recruited into quasi-military organizations and, and so on. And I think with certain exceptions, we see a lot less of that. In a certain way, plenty of these right-wing populist authoritarian leaders, you know, I mean, they talk the talk of more public participation, let the people speak and so on and so forth. But actually in many ways, they're very happy if society is demobilized and they can do whatever they, whatever they want to do, including some of their kleptocratic practices, so basically stealing from, from, from state coffers, and they're not necessarily interested in some large-scale mobilization of the people themselves. And if I just may add one, one small footnote, it's actually not so small in terms, of, in terms of what it really means in the grand scheme of things. Obviously, all fascist states were also deeply racist and plenty of, plenty of, Right-wing authoritarian populists also practice one form of racism or another. But it would still, for me, be not plausible to say that they're somehow in the same category as, let's say, 
a Hitler who basically constructed a state that was entirely racialized, entirely about, mm -hmm. as we know, racial exclusion, and then eventually also uh, aims of, of, of extermination. So in that sense, I think I think uh, we we might not doing doing be doing ourselves a favor if we always immediately reach for fascism as a concept, because in a perverse way, it might also make it easier for some of today's authoritarians to say, "Come on, I mean, come visit my country." You know, do you see anything that's comparable in terms of camps or in terms of mass mobilization of people and and so on? That doesn't mean that everything is okay. On the contrary, but again, I'm not sure how helpful that particular recourse to history in today's context always always is. Is it just authoritarians? Um, is it, doesn't big tech also work against uncertainty and seek to render politics and individual citizens predictable? They certainly try, although I would insist, and again, forgive me if that sounds slightly pedantic, that it's in a sense not the technology as such. I think some of our colleagues, uh, I think, have gone too far in the direction of a certain kind of technological determinism, where they now write articles about, you know, Facebook equals fascism, and basically we were doomed because of social media. Everything was more or less okay before, and here we are now. And again, it has a sort of slightly elitist tinge to it, because sometimes in the background there's the assumption that, you know, now that everybody can participate and articulate themselves online, you know, we have a massive problem for, for democracy. But there remains a bit of a difference, to say the least, between technology and then very particular business models. So it's of course true that Facebook, as the most egregious example that everybody knows about, is based on what, what Shoshana Zuboff uh, has, in, in a, with a very good term, called surveillance capitalism. So yes, you, we are being constantly surveilled. Uh, the whole point is to make us predictable in certain ways because that's how the money is earned in terms mm -hmm. of targeting us with, with particular ads. But that's not inherent in the technology itself. And to now sort of go from the one extreme that we had about a decade ago, you know, some of us are old enough to remember all this rhetoric about, oh, Facebook and Twitter will now, you know, spur democratic revolutions everywhere. The Arab Spring is only the beginning. Now we've kind of gone to the other extreme of gloom and doom. I think shows that we don't really have our criteria right, that we don't understand these phenomena in a fine-grained way that, that really would, as allow, would allow us to say, well, maybe on cer in certain ways it's not so bad that social media allows people to see certain things, allows people to participate. I'm obviously not claiming to be an expert on this, but from what I read uh, right now in Cuba as well, it was very important that people were able to follow some of the initial protests uh, on online. So it would, very, it would be very hard for me at least to say that, oh, now we declare this technology to be sort of inherently anti-democratic the business models are the problem as you say the monopoly power of some of these some of these platforms are definitely a problem and the reduction of uncertainty is also a problem even though i hasten to add what really goes on and to what extent surveillance capitalism actually really works to what extent we are really now all caught in echo chambers is a question that empirically is not nearly as settled as sometimes people make it out to be. Intuitively, of course, you know, it makes sense for a lot of us to say, yeah, of course, you know, we always sort of confirm each other online. Of course, it's an echo chamber. But as, for instance, one of my distinguished colleagues here at Princeton, Andy Guess, has pointed out with a very nice formulation, 
we ourselves, in our way of talking about this, may have developed a certain echo chamber about echo chambers. So we are constantly repeating, oh, filter bubbles online and so on. And those who actually try to investigate some of these issues are much more inclined now to say, again, without sort of having the final answers, that actually maybe in certain ways our online line online life is actually in certain ways maybe more diverse than our offline life. So I think we should be careful, and again, that's why I'm saying it's a very pedantic point, we should be careful with some of these sort of large generalizations about technology as such and the idea that somehow democracy is doomed because of some technological innovation. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm sentimental if you know what I mean. I love the country, but I can't stand the scene. And I'm neither left or right. I'm just staying home tonight, getting lost in that hopeless little screen. But I'm stubborn as those garbage bags of time cannot decay. I'm junk, but I'm still holding up this little wild bouquet. Democracy is coming to the USA. We're back with Jan Werner Muller, professor of politics at Princeton University. He's been a member of the School of Historical Studies, Institute of Advanced Study, Princeton, and a visiting fellow at the Collegium Budapest Institute of Advanced Study, uh, Collegium Helsinki, the Institute of Human Sciences in Vienna, the Remark Institute, NYU, the Center for European Studies, Harvard, as well as the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Studies at uh, the European University Institute in Florence. And he's also a co-founder of the European College of Liberal Arts. Arts in Berlin, uh, Germany's first private English-speaking liberal arts college, for which he has served as founding research uh, director. And he, his current book is called Democracy Rules. It is published by Farah Strauss and Giroux. Did I leave anything out? Uh, that list was long enough to have turned <laughs> off any, any listener by now. <laughs> Were you surprised when... Uh, General Michael Flynn said that he'd like to see a coup in the United States similar to the one that took place in Myanmar. Well, I was still surprised. Again, I'm I'm not claiming to be particularly prescient um, as as a you know as a political theorist. That's not really the business I'm in, and I'm generally also very concerned if maybe sometimes people who are in social science you know are, are a bit too liberal with their with their predictions. But the pattern, I think, in certain ways was foreseeable. I think that basically in the run-up to November 2020, it became clear enough that there was not going to be any kind of normal concession. It was, I think, a very plausible, a very plausible worry. And I think if 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 we, we are to believe some of the uh, reporting by by people at the Washington Post that is just being published. And I think it was a very plausible worry by the by other parts of the military, let's say, that that something could go very seriously wrong and that something like a pretext was being sought to maybe bring in the military to in whatever way necessary, overturn, overturn the the actual the actual election election uh, election result. So, as but, we know, but ironically, it's, it's, leaders of the military uh, said that they would oppose that. Yes, and uh, I mean, obviously, the you know that that's 
obviously a very good thing. At the same time, from a different perspective, you might say, look, do you really want to be in a democracy where it's down to actors like this mm-hmm. in terms of will the system survive or not? Or put differently, do you really want to be in a situation where, let's say, local Republican officials, you know, the, with all due respect, Brad Raffensperger's of this world are ultimately going to decide which way it's going to go? Or do you want to have something that is more robust and that has more basically checks built in such that people who, you know, should never really be put in this position of having to decide which way it's going to go ultimately face that kind of that kind of responsibility? Many of the people who attacked the uh, the Capitol building on January 6th were calling for a coup. So that uh, it seems to me that a certain segment of the population, and it isn't all that small, is now leaning toward anti-democratic sensibilities. Yes, and that's that's that is clearly a concern. That, to put it very bluntly, a democracy that has a two-party system in which one of the parties, of course, not entirely, I'm not generalizing about every single Republican, but where significant parts of that party, including parts of the leadership, have basically invested in what, of course, nowadays we all call the big lie, but more more subtly even in this claim that there is a kind of real America that is being betrayed, that is being taken away from people and so on, um, has a massive problem. And I think historically, unfortunately, we have few precedents for a situation like this. There are other countries which, you know, have multi-party systems where such a party would be shunned or ostracized or where in some countries, even a party like this, which so egregiously violates basic principles, could even be banned and taken out of circulation entirely. Clearly, you can't do this in a, in a, in a two-party system like we have in like we have in the US but the structural challenge is enormous and clearly it's at this point also no longer simply dependent on ex president trump you know the, the person who some people i think rightly now call the you know the troll of south beach um obviously you know he kind of keeps it going but at a certain point these perceptions and these let's say ideas about this is sort of truly our partisan identity are going to become so firm that it's going to be very, very difficult to simply undo. You say the genius of democracy is its constitutional principles, including the non-negotiable claim that the government cannot deny the standing of particular citizens as free and equal members of, of the polity. But hasn't that been undermined over the years by gerrymandering and other election fixes, Jim Crow in in the past, and recently by these restrictive voting laws that have been enacted in a number of states. Is all of that likely to succeed in the long run? Or is this just a phase we're going through? Uh, So I agree that this is is a, a clear example of where that principle isn't being respected. I think it also goes back to something that, in a strange way, I mean, now now is, now is here sort of the glorious moment of both sidesism, um, which in a certain way both parties to some degree share, namely a kind of determinism about who ultimately will ever vote for them and what kind of appeals they can plausibly make to certain parts of the country. So obviously the Republicans have a very clear idea who they need to exclude and how, and that's a very bad thing. 
and you know it, it, in a sense is a no-brainer in terms of why that needs to be needs to be resisted as 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 the president has also you know made very clear in recent in recent days but on the other side the sort of assumption by some democrats that oh the demographic trends are all sort of in our favor in the long term anyway etc i think in a certain way also doesn't doesn't take sufficient account of uncertainty as an important part of democracy and if indeed we had more competition if republicans for instance were to say look we're not you know, entirely against, let's say, Puerto Rico becoming a state, because we actually think that some of the people living there are actually quite conservative in certain respects. You know, we could really sort of put together a package that could appeal to people. We're not sort of just from the get-go always assuming that we could never reach certain people or that, to pick up a term we talked about earlier, that politically we could basically never make certain people redeemable for our agenda. That sort of basically leads to outcomes where in one form or another, you try to exclude people. Of course, I hasten to add that I'm not equating the two parties. The Democrats aren't trying to exclude anybody officially. So there's no symmetry here. Again, it's it's an asymmetrical polarization, not a symmetrical one. But the ultimate underlying thought and the, the danger of being too, de- too deterministic about sort of how majorities might be constructed, what coalitions you might possibly build in the future. That is, I think, something that ought generally to be resisted. To be fair, in the past, a, uh, a segment of the Democratic Party was uh, the, the, the group that tried to prevent people from voting, uh, especially during the Jim Crow years. So uh, is this just proof of the, of, to you of the fact that people change their minds? Or, or that uh, in the case of uh, what happened in the South, most of those uh, Southern Democrats just switched party affiliation when it became obvious that the Democratic Party, the National Democratic Party, was moving in a different direction. Yeah, so clearly there is that there is that history. Although I would I would resist um, the move that, of course, sometimes you know right wing agitators are very prone to make, which is to sort of dig up something about, you know, that old Democratic Party and show that, oh, but actually that's the real racist party. And, you know, there can't be anything wrong with us today, with the Republican side, because, hey, we're the party of Lincoln and so on. Clearly, things have have changed, Um, but they've also changed in ways which, in retrospect, make it clear that what is sometimes nowadays sort of still held up as, as an important part of democracy. So, you know, bipartisanship, being civil with each other, and so on. Yes, is I'm not saying it's trivial, but it can coexist with basically ignoring long-standing problems. I mean, this is what some other political scientists, I think, have also clearly shown um, in in their work that you know what what in our, to us now sometimes can look like oh these were the glorious days. You know, in the Senate, when all these old white men were still getting along and working out great compromises and so on, the kinds of things that occasionally candidate Biden seemed to gesture towards when he when he kept saying, look, I'm going to you know meet all my old friends again and I know how to do the deals. Um, all that could coexist with basically a more or less shared commitment not to open the question of real equality of non-discrimination in, in, in the South. So. Once that once that question was truly on the table, you realize, okay, you know, we we had a kind of conflict all along, and we need to address that conflict. And pretending that it doesn't exist, or basically, basically turning a blind eye to these ongoing practices, uh, yes, can maybe make occasionally for seemingly more civil politics. But 
on a deeper level, it's profoundly uncivil and it's profoundly undemocratic. So we really never have had uh, a long period of, of true bipartisanship. The, the country's always been divided one way or another. Uh, is that just a, a, a positive facet of democracy? So if we didn't have divisions, if we didn't have conflicts, there, at some level there is a question about why do we really need democracy as this kind of machinery which allows us to resolve conflicts in a conclusive, but at the same time also always temporary way at all. Because after all, that's part of you know what elections are for, is to basically give us a clear moment of saying, okay, this is really where the majority is, this is now legitimate to enact as laws, but what is today the minority might become a majority again in the future. And we always need to sort of open, keep that, keep that possibility, possibility open. So what this, I think, con more concretely means is that a lot of the kind of stereotypical lamentations about, oh, the country is so divided. And, you know, if we all could just come together, this, with all due respect, sometimes sort of very kitschy communitarianism, which seems to assume that democratic politics is only OK if it basically results in consensus. I think that's a mistake. Divisions, conflicts, all that is completely okay. The question is on which terms and within what limits does conflict happen? And as already discussed a little bit earlier, clearly you need to respect the other side as being properly part of the polity. If you basically like right-wing authoritarian populists always keep saying, you know, my critics are simply un-American, uh, it's not really worth kind of talking to them because they don't really belong here in the first place. They have no place in our public debate, etc. There's no common basis. And I know this is a, is, is a very tricky issue. I'm not pretending it's simple. But if you have absolutely no common grounds in terms of facts, then it's also kind of hard to see others as partners in conflict. And that's not to say that, oh, you know, if you all agree on the facts, then, you know, the facts will speak for themselves. Of course, the facts never speak for themselves. None of us has ever heard the facts speak. But there's still plenty of room to disagree in terms of different value commitments or different assumptions about how certain policies are going to work out or not work out and so on. But if, let's say, we have somebody who, who you know, persists with a big lie or somebody who says, look, you know, it's still completely unclear what's happening with global warming. I don't believe a word of what, you know, the absolutely overwhelming majority of, of scientists are telling us. Then it's very hard to conduct conflict or deal with divisions in a productive and also a peaceful way. Many Democrats are really angry with Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema because they're insisting on some uh, bipartisan approach. Well, it's again, it's bipartisanship is something that's not really at the level of fundamental democratic principles, democratic with a small d, principles such as liberty and equality. In certain, in certain contexts, it may well be justified. It may well make a lot of sense to turn to citizens and say, look, you know, we, we are really making a major change. And the fact that we could all kind of agree on this should be a signal to you that even if you, you know, are tending towards a totally different direction, you know, maybe think again how important this is. Look what a large majority we might be on occasion mobilize for a particular for a particular agenda. But I'm reluctant to go along with those who sort of treat it as a good in and of itself. There's there's plenty there are plenty of occasions when it's much more plausible to say, look, you know, a majority 
must also have the ability to basically get its way as long as the minority also has its say and gets another chance at becoming the majority again, but to basically always say, oh, no, a majority is never quite enough. You need a supermajority or you need to bring on people from the other side. It's not obvious why these are truly democratic ideas as opposed to basically a kind of inherently conservative bias towards the status quo, towards slowing things down, towards making things more difficult for majorities. My guest is Jan Werner Muller, whose latest book is Democracy Rules, published by Farah Strauss and Giroux. Well, wasn't it uh, undemocratic from the start when uh, we had a, when the Senate was created, where uh, I don't know how many states uh, have a smaller population than just New York City, um, that uh, it's it's kind of in, in some ways it's kind of skewed uh, to the minority. It's often said that the founding fathers were worried about a tyranny of the majority. It's mm. not always pointed out that they were also very worried about a tyranny of the minority, and that there are plenty of plenty of examples, both in history and in the present, where it's precisely the entrenchment of a minority including for structural reasons like the ones you, you just mentioned, basically can prevent majorities from enacting, you know, certain kinds of changes, which are perfectly compatible with the kind of boundaries of democratic conflict we were just we were just talking about. So I think this is something that's that is that is worth foregrounding more that it's it's not always oh you know a kind of uh, majority that that will you know has, has nothing else on its mind but to you know basically tyrannize a minority you know the, the sort of worries that famously were were articulated by Alexis de Tocqueville in in his writings about democracy in America there is also the problem of basically a counter majoritarian hmm. party that as, for instance, the uh, the uh, the NYU media critic uh, Jay Rosen has pointed out, is also, in a sense, increasingly becoming a kind of counterfactual party, because they know that actually lots of its lots of its policies are not very attractive for majorities. So, if you do surveys, many people, when they're explained, you know, or, or told what sort of let's say Republican economic policies actually are, so you know, eighty percent of the tax cut goes to the upper 1%, they're not very happy with these sorts of proposals. So there's also an incentive to basically systematically deny those facts or to veil those facts or to, as Steve Bannon infamously put it, hmm. but quite accurately in a certain way, to flood the zone with shit so that there's sort of confusion about what the parties really stand for, what a certain political reality really is. So it's, it's, it's a systemic problem if a minority, for structural reasons, in a certain way stops competing or trying to really convince majorities and uses the inbuilt advantages of the American system to basically persist with policies that are not ultimately very attractive for real majorities. Isn't that what's happening to some degree, uh, the bending of the rules uh, now when some Republicans, most notably Matt Gates, have proposed nominating Trump to be Speaker of the House uh, if the, if the uh, Republicans who gain a majority uh, in the House in the next election? And that could lead to his being reinstated as president. 
Well, at least I'm a little puzzled by this whole idea of reinstatement or what exactly that procedure is supposed to is supposed to involve beyond a kind of symbolic marker of, oh, you know, guys, you've you got to be mobilized. And also, by the way, you have to keep donating uh, to Trump uh, because that's, you know, what, what that sort of movement lives off as, as well. Um, so, yes, it's, it's worrying that basically losers don't really accept a loss, uh, that they've really, in a sense, given up on any attempt to engage with the actual agenda of the president and Democrats at the moment, the kind of bread and butter issues that, uh, again, of course, on one level, Republicans know are quite popular. So that's, of course, why they are partly flooding, again, if I may use that expression, flooding the zone with shit slash critical race theory Ooh, concerns you and, you know, cancel children's books and all this kind of stuff, which, you know, is supposed to rile people up, but which actually has very little to do with real challenges, uh, real political problems, people's real lives and day-to-day -day worries in 2021. We only have a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to address uh, the, the coda of your book, which is headed Five Reasons for Democratic Hope, Not Optimism. How can the proponents of liberal democracy reclaim the fundamental democratic principles and, and values? I'm desperately trying to bring in a great political theorist uh, who we heard from earlier on. So Leonard Cohen, in that, in that famous 90s song, Democracy is Coming to the USA, uh, he also, the if I remember correctly, had, had that line, the feel that it's not real or if it's real, it ain't exactly there. So mm -hmm. I think part of this is to remember sort of what really matters about democracy, what is what is real, what fundamental principles really matter. Contrary to some of my colleagues who sort of tend to invoke surveys, according to which especially millennials are kind of turning away from democracy, I think people kind of know what the essentials are. On some on some level, and they're not turning away from the basic from the basic principles, and that can sound like not much in a certain way. But again, it's very different from the 20th century when really there were systemic alternatives, and many people did say we want to be done with parliamentary democracy, representative democracy as it as it has been as it has been practiced. So that's on the other hand. On the other hand, don't many uh, people who have refused to be vaccinated or wear masks claim that it's their constitutional right? Well, that's that's a whole another issue. And again, I would I'll be we, we have to one minute. throw this in the throw this into the same category as as, you know, the, the survival of democracy. That's something we know we, we, we can have a long discussion about. Is, is this is this a, is this a good idea not to get vaccinated? Is it really something? that you want to do to your fellow citizens because it's obviously not just about you it's about it's about what happens to other people as well so i like you i suppose i have a problem with that attitude but i would be reluctant to now stretch our notion of democracy such that all kinds of things we happen to disagree with are simply called undemocratic again i would i would repeat the point maybe from earlier that we can have plenty of conflicts in a democracy we can have conflicts about immigration about uh, schooling, about all kinds of hot-button issues in such a way that both winners and losers in these conflicts can feel that they can live with the outcome. There are certain boundaries that matter, and it's important to remember these boundaries. It's important to tell our fellow citizens when these boundaries are being, are being crossed. But if our expectation is, oh, everybody now should have a consensus or everybody should agree with me, then we are bound to be disappointed again and again and we lose sight of the fact what it actually means to have a halfway functioning 
democracy, which, you know, will always leave lots of people, lots of people to satisfy. We'll always have policies that plenty of us don't don't like. But as long as it's an ongoing open process and we have a chance to convince people, including those who others might deem to be irredeemable, I think we can we can live with that. Uh, we've uh, come to the end of this show, but it's been a great pleasure speaking with you, Jan Werner Muller. His latest book, Democracy Rules from Farrah Strauss and Giroux. He's a professor of politics at Princeton University, the author of several books, most recently, the critically acclaimed What is Populism? And he contributes regularly to the London Review of Books, The Guardian, and the New York Review of Books. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And this is WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. It brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Leonard Lopez at large executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the work that they do throughout the week. If you'd like to hear more, you can access all of our over 500 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopezAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Right now, I, I, I need to ask you to consider giving your support to WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during this difficult time. We're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Please call it right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Uh, WBAI is the only station in the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-supported, which means that we rely on listeners like you, quite frankly, to stay on the air. It's the way this whole crazy experiment and completely listener-supported radio works, and it allows us to not worry about censors and to, to talk about democracy uh, in, a, in a very free-form way. So if you like the sound of no corporate overlords telling us how to do this show, why not play a part in helping to keep it going. We might not have all the state-of-the-art cutting-edge technology here at WBAI, but we are refreshingly independent. So please call 212-209-2950 now or go to give to WBAI.org to keep Leonard Lopez at Large coming to you on this station weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. From all of us at WBAI to everyone who has contributed so far, thanks. We're off of the next few days, but I hope you'll join us on Tuesday when language experts and regular contributors to the show, Catherine and Ross Petrus, will look at whether the way we speak to each other is changing as the United States starts to emerge from the pandemic. Have a great weekend. <laughs>